Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, what is up? Ben, it is our first ever bonus episode of the Lords of Limited podcast. We reached our stretch goal on Patreon, and we're going to be doing an extra episode free of charge to our patrons each and every month. And as we teased a few weeks ago, this week we are pleased, proud, excited to welcome the man behind the meme, Deathsea. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been a long time, and I've been looking forward to you know hop on the Lords of Limited podcast for um, quite a while now. So thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, we are super, super excited. I think this, as the first of our bonus episodes, is a perfect platform for you because I there's a lot of questions that I know a lot of people that listen to our show or watch our streams have for you. I know I get a lot of people coming into my channel and are always like, well, Detsy thinks this about this card. And what do you think? And I'm like, I don't know, but I want to talk to him about it. So here we are. So I think we've got a lot of questions here in our Google Doc in front of me, and I want to just dive Right in here, Ben. So why don't we why don't we introduce Deathsea in, in proper fashion here? Yeah, for people who don't know you are, Deathsea, can you start by telling us about your background in competitive Hearthstone and how you sort of transitioned to Magic Arena and full-time Magic streaming? Yeah, so Hearthstone was my first uh, introduction into esports. And that was, I think it's been six years now, almost, since I first um, went into Hearthstone. And Hearthstone, for me, was a game that came after Magic the Gathering. But uh, after moving to England for university... I kind of lost the gathering part of it. My uh, local game store was a big part of playing Magic the Gathering for me. And um, it was around that time that I got into Hearthstone. And that was my introduction into uh, esports, essentially. And from there, you know, I competed in Hearthstone. I uh, commentated Hearthstone. I did television work in England, right off of London King's Cross. Um, There was a Jinx TV, the Jinx TV Studios. And we recorded um, a kind of a kind of a television talk show type show um, called The Bridge. And we did that for a long time. I was a co-host there for a long time. And um, outside of that, I've done basically every role you could expect in esports. I did a lot of background stuff with esports organizations and, you know, from player management to kind of market analysis and stuff like that for the bigger teams. So I've been around for a long time uh, before Magic Arena, but now I'm just a Magic Arena streamer full time. I stream anywhere from usually 50 to 80 hours a week, something like that. Just no life. That is insane. <laughs> Very casual amount of time. Was there anything in particular that caused that transition from Hearthstone to Arena for you? Was it was it the introduction of Arena that got you back into Magic? Was it a sort of falling out of love with Hearthstone? Or what sort of happened there? Yeah, it was a big falling out of love with Hearthstone. For as much as I credit... Hearthstone to a lot of the friendships I have these days. Most of my best friends are still from the Hearthstone days, even uh, even if we don't necessarily play Hearthstone anymore. But it was a really stressful and <laughs> painful, as well as very poor time of my life, uh, competing in Hearthstone um, and uh, trying to live the Hearthstone dream. But um, long story short, all of the stress and buildup essentially hospitalized me. I think that was in 2018, like mid-2018. 
Um, I was hospitalized from stress, and uh, I and and I had a uh, my asthma kind of resurge from uh, childhood. So those are really really hard times, and I was very close to giving up on esports stuff. You know, just going out to get get a real job and finding something to uh, leverage my my uh, master's degree from the London School of Economics. So kind of my last shot in the dark in esports was a streaming Magic Arena. I was like, you know what? The absolute last thing I'm going to try here um, is to stream Magic Arena on Twitch. And if that doesn't work out, then that's that's it. That's me done with competitive esports, um, anything Twitch related. And I'm just going to go out and... Um, you know, suck it up, do something else. Seems like the magic kicked off and has taken off for you, though, yeah? Yeah, magic, <laughs> you know, if you if you aren't as good as somebody else or as popular as somebody else, you just have to work two, three times as hard. So what I did for a very, very long time, and I, I believe the end of 2018, start of 2019, was I streamed every single day at the exact same time for, I think it was like anywhere from eight, to 14 hours every single day <laughs> i didn't take a single day off so i don't know exactly what where my success came from but i think that that sort of uh tenacity was a part of that i love that you're coming off of being hospitalized for stress your solution was <laughs> i think i'll stream every day from about eight to 14 hours a day that should make me feel better yeah you know a lot of ideas sound a lot better before <laughs> you say it out loud <laughs> so speaking of that you know in magic i think one of the things that i associate with you when i watch your stream or people come into my stream and are like hey desi's doing this what do you think you, I think, have a lot of unconventional opinions or unconventional pick orders for Magic. And maybe some of that is your Hearthstone background. Maybe some of that is just carving your own way in Magic or not having grown up with a lot of the, the Ben Stark style content that Ethan and I grew up with. But do you have any thoughts about that or any ideas of why that might be for you? I definitely do agree with that. I feel like every ingenious idea I've ever had in Magic started out as an absolutely terrible one. So I think about this a lot, where if we had the option right now to open Pandora's box, would you do it? Even if it would probably kill you? For me, the answer is yes. I, I would always open it. it. It just doesn't matter because for me... I don't know exactly where it comes from, but I I value the essence of truth. And one of the things about magic and about video games in general is that you don't necessarily have to be right to be successful. And what I mean by that is that a lot of times people have these sort of ideologies, um, these heuristics almost that they've been following for a very, very long time. And they could be high level players. They could be uh, successful tournament grinders. but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're right. So for me, it's always a focus on trying to dissociate the act of doing something well and, and conceptualizing something to the result of it. So to me, I really try to figure out like what what is actually the correct thing to do um, as opposed to just, you know, w w what we say is the right thing because we've been doing it for so long. So I'm curious about like how you what that process is. And I, it sounds like it's very much like an innate thing or an instinctual thing, you know, because when I think about myself, you know, I rely a lot not only on my own thought process or my own intuition about cards or card evaluation or draft, but I also rely heavily on talking to 
Ben or Alex or Ryan or people in our Discord or people on Twitter or whatever. And I and, and I could be wrong, correct me if I am, but I get the sense that a lot of what you do is on your own. You know, your tier list is on your own and you're reevaluating that. And that's something I want to talk about a little later too. And your card evaluations, your discoveries of these niche strategies, whether or not they are memes or real, well, we'll get to that later a little bit too. But I, I'm, I'm curious, if you're coming to this stuff on your own, is there? do you ever sit down one day and you go, I want to break card X or does it happen more organically? I think it's a little bit of both. Sometimes I have, uh, you know, just a random burst of in- inspiration in the middle of my day when maybe I'm doing my laundry or something and I just think about, oh, hey, Carter's Vicious Return. You know, this is a card that everyone's talking down on, but it, it actually does some powerful things on this card. So then from there, I start, you know, maybe maybe having a train of thought. But uh, you are correct that for the most part, I do enjoy kind of engaging with magic on my own, mm-hmm. which is really weird because people know me as the tearless guy. <laughs> I actually don't really like spoilers. So in the beginning of a format, I absolutely do not watch anybody stream. You know what I mean? I like to figure out everything else everything out for myself and part of that is because um the sort of exploration phase in magic is one that generally doesn't last very long i think that that's one of the blessed things about the currents at kaldheim that i've loved so much is that the exploration phase has been phenomenal now there are a lot of formats you know in recent history m21 you know maybe maybe you just play some some uh, random sets and the exploration phase is not that long sometimes the format will be figured out in a week for me i really really try to not get spoiled about the format and um a big part of that is just trying to come up with things myself and um you know not really necessarily caring about winning that much because for me the expiration is the most important part uh winning can come later all right so speaking of you as the tier list guy i did did want to ask you here i'm jumping ahead in our notes a little bit that tier lists do seem to be a pretty big part of the content you put out and you seem to be pretty darn good about or pretty consistent about updating them so my question for you is is that more a thing for your viewers? You're like, this is something people want in terms of content, so I'm going to provide it. Or do you find tier lists to be informative for your own process? And if so, how? Yeah, one of my philosophies in life in general is that no matter what I do, I want it to be for myself, first and foremost. Hmm. So the tier list is actually a very fun way for me to just conceptualize and to and and for people to visualize the things that I have in my brain. I also think that my tier lists are probably the number one reason for my success on Magic Arena as well. So before I started playing Magic Arena and streaming, I recognized that there were tier lists that existed. You know, so like uh, Limited Resources would put out tier lists every single time a new set comes out. But the tier list is more like a card evaluation um, before the set comes out. And I was like, Okay, well, limited metas, even though people don't think they change, limited metas oftentimes have many shifts and and the and just how good cards are change over time. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to bring updated tier lists. You know, tier lists that necess- that didn't necessarily stay uh, static, but were more dynamic as the as the meta progressed and as more people played the format. So it became something that I um, tried to curate very carefully 
And it essentially is just a reflection of my ratings of cards in my mind. So I have another question for you about tier lists. There are times at the beginning of a format or even sometimes a couple weeks into a format, I will look at your tier list and I will think that X, take whatever it is, is super crazy. Like some card that you have that I think can't possibly be S tier that you've got in the S tier. Are some of those decisions, you know, hot takey or to try to get eyeballs on the tier list? Or is that really your true evaluation of the card, right or wrong? I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, <laughs> most of the things I do is for, you know, kind of kind of hot take clickbait content. Um kind of hot singles in your area type thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's kind of a big part of, you know, just trying to grow a channel and stuff. And and I don't feel that bad about it because when I click big viewers into my channel, you know, a lot of them stay because the content is still pretty good. I do have to say myself, but I can't really think of a card off the top of my head. Maybe, maybe if you can think of one, you can let me know. But some of these cards, I do kind of give it a higher rating than I think it would be just because I have a lot of faith in uh, what that card is. Well, so this seems like the perfect opportunity. Let's talk about Gold Vein Pick. Let's do Because it. I think you have spawned the meme that is Gold Vein Pick. And I think you are responsible for people like Ethan and I, you know, figuring out just how powerful the card is, which it is a good card in the right situations. But you also are single handedly responsible for it being included in thousands of decks that it doesn't necessarily go in, I think. So what are your thoughts on Goldbane pick? Like, how real is that? And how exactly good do you think it is? I would also like to start maybe even before that with its origin. Like, do you remember, again, is this a youth that sat down, you were doing your laundry folding up and you're like, oh, I wonder if Goldbane pick is good. Did you <laughs> did you spot that from the beginning? Did it like sort of come a little organically? How did Goldbane pick become sort of the Death Sea card for Kaldheim? Okay, so I think in the beginning when I did my initial reviews, I don't think Goldbane pick is a card that I rated very highly. Um, I'm trying to look it up right now, but I believe that when uh, I was doing my card review for the format, which which uh, which I do one for every single one, uh, every single format, I believe that I rated it as a D because it's it's the same because I was thinking the same thing that everyone else was thinking. You know, Goldwing pick. It's it's not that much different than Short Sword. <laughs> it's just a random equipment that's never really been good in any limited format. But the moment that I started paying attention to the equipment was when I was kind of in a rut and I was just like, how is this format not a core set? Because first of all, it has Revitalize. Okay, Revitalize has only been ever printed in core sets. So I was like, you know what? 2021 doesn't have an official core set, and this set has Revitalize. Is this just the core set of 2021? All of the creature stat lines were incredibly low for what we've been used to in the last few years of magic right so everything is so there are like so many hill giants i've never seen so many hill giants four mana three threes in a non-corset format and so i was thinking to myself and i was like huh how do we make these terrible creatures better there's got to be some way equipment is something that <laughs> came as an answer to that even though on my stream, even, I have mentioned a lot of times where I just don't think that equipment um, is a endemic feeling part of magic. Where if Planeswalkers are the least endemic thing, the least magic feeling type card, I think that equipment would be the second 
type of card that just doesn't feel um, at home in Magic the Gathering. You know, it could easily go tomorrow and we wouldn't miss it. But again, in this format, the stat lines are just so bad that I look to equipment to try to um, mitigate that, to try to make the creatures actually do something. And to my surprise, Goldvein Pick was a card that sometimes felt like GTA, sometimes felt like Black Lotus. <laughs> there he is. There's that meme. I was just like, how is this card even fair? How is this card even fair? So that's kind of the uh, discovery process that led to Goldvein Pick. And um, it was a very gradual progression. It, you know, it started off as a meme. And I think that even though it's still a meme, it. <laughs> has been a car that people have been successful with. So diving into that a little bit more, there was it did not seem gradual on my end. I've like it felt like overnight I was like heard that Desi was on Goldvein pick as some S tier card. And so there was like a, maybe a couple weeks into the format where you were on like the pack one, pick one, pick one thing <laughs> over some pretty good cards. Do you think that's correct draft strategy or was that because you wanted to explore the card and just see what its potential was like how much of that is trying to optimize your win rate and how much of it is just doing what you want to do so i did a lot of experimentation with where gold vein pick belongs and uh, the sort of science <laughs> if you saw the exploration process you'd be kind of disgusted it would be like, um, I would try it in a blue deck, for example, right? And I would be like, all right, well, which blue creatures can wield a gold vein pick? Because ideally, you play either a one or two drop. And then on turn three, you play gold vein pick for two mana. And then you use the last mana to equip and attack. And that's how you essentially snowball a game. And I was like, okay, turn to Avalanche Caller. Avalanche Caller, people are like, this is the best card, the best blue and common in the format. All right. And then I was like, all right, well, you know what? Two, four attacks pretty well with a gold vein pick <laughs> and just completely using these cards incorrectly. And it was just a lot of fun trying to figure out what I could do. So I had a lot of pilfering hawks, you know, with 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 pickaxes attacking on turn three. I had, you know, that that was kind of part of the discovery process of Battlefield Raptor. Battlefield Raptor is one of the best equipment wielders um, because it has first strike and is well statted. In terms of pick orders, I do think that people are still undervaluing pick a little bit, which is kind of crazy to say because I think everybody basically knows about Goldvein pick. But I was trying to just, you know, just see how good Goldvein pick is. And I do think that it is better than most rares. The biggest problem is that it doesn't fit in every single color combination as well as I would like it to. That is the biggest thing. Um, but I think in the Mardu colors, I think Goldvein pick is, you should be trying to have that curve anyways to be able to optimize, uh, you know, just your just your game plan in general. And then Goldvein pick slots right into that. So the thing that I'm hearing from you that I, I want to latch onto, which isn't the Goldvein pick is better than most rares thing, which we're just going to, we're just going to skirt that to the side here for a second. Um, <laughs> The thing that I do I do want to talk about because I feel like people get lost in the pick sauce a little bit at least when I for for my money and I would love for you to correct me if I, I'm wrong or or tell me where I'm I'm going wrong here but it sounds to me like and I agree with this aspect of pick is that it's kind of your deck's game plan in a sense like you've posted a lot of decks that have like you know three picks and then a, you're using those treasures to play these off color runes that then make your picks even better and so it's all this game plan and then you're looking for the cheapest creatures to wield those picks hopefully those creatures are evasive etc cetera, etc cetera. it all sort of like snowballs together but it starts with 
I'm doing this because I want to maximize gold vein pick. And I think then people get lost in some sauce of like, oh, I want, I'm going to use pick to ramp into my lindworm. But I'm like, well, I don't know what creature you think is getting through early enough to make this treasure that then is going to help you ramp. I think people, for my money, I think people get lost in playing picks in decks like that or thinking about using the treasures in that way or relying on the treasures for fixing for things when they don't essentially have those evasive creatures. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel responsible for that, Desi? (laughs) He he should. I, you know... A lot of people come to my stream and they're like, hey, Desi, you've ruined this format for me. Congratulations. And in the beginning, I kind of took a little bit of offense to that. But now I just see it as just a fantastic compliment. It happens every single new expansion. (laughs) Every single one. So I feel a little bit proud. You know, some men just want to watch the world burn, and uh, I am included in those. So, so shifting back a little bit macro from the Goldwing pick discussion, what you had talked about common pick orders. Do you subscribe to, in addition to your tier lists, like ranking the top commons and using a pick order? You know, at least to help guide your first couple initial picks, and sort of as a language to help discuss the format and where it's at. Yes, I do think that it the evaluation of cards generally is extremely important. But at the same time, I think that there's not enough of an emphasis on understanding the context of a pack. So, for example, just because maybe Seraph's Packmate is the best green common in the format, it doesn't mean that just because in one pack you would first pick it, that in another pack you would also first pick it. You know, it really just depends on the draft. And I think that's one of the most complicated things about drafting And one of the things that I've tried to get people away from is this sort of discourse about good card, bad card, because that's something that I really, really don't like. And I think that people would think that I subscribe to that because I have a tier list and I rate cards as essentially good cards or bad cards. In practice, there is there should be a big focus on how good the card is, how bad the card is as well as how good or bad it is with your current cards and um, in your deck. So I try to emphasize that while I'm streaming, um, during my streams, during my drafts. And it's just really important to understand just how good cards are generally, but not necessarily judge them as being good or bad. Yeah, amen. Love that thought. So just diving back even further, zooming out even more, you know, do you have an overarching way to describe your draft strategy? You know, like there's the famous Ben Stark drafting the hard way, you know, where you're really trying to stay open and read signals from your neighbors. And then there's just full on forcing, like you sit down and I'm going to draft the Goldbane pick deck no matter what. Like, Are you somewhere on that spectrum? Do you have a way to describe your approach to draft? And is it dynamic? Does it change draft to draft? Uh, yes, it does. So I do have a name for it. It's a little bit embarrassing to say it myself. But uh, I do have a YouTube video on my not very popular YouTube channel. It's called Drafting the Sleazy Way. You know, it's... (laughs) Love it. (laughs) It's essentially a play on Drafting the Easy Way. But the reason why I call it Drafting the Sleazy Way is that you want to draft in a way that not only focuses on biases, which which is essentially what forcing is, right? Forcing is having a strong bias towards a certain 
archetype or color or color combination. But you also have to be able to read the pack as well, uh, which is what Ben Stark emphasizes in Drafting the Hard Way. So it's a combination of both of these. And I think that in the era of best of one gaming on Magic Arena, it's even better. The reason being is that you are allowed to waste more picks because you don't need a robust sideboard for best of three. So uh, that is essentially where uh, where uh, drafting the sleazy way shines. And what drafting the sleazy way is, is um, you are obviously trying to read signals because you because you want to get paid off, but you also understand what the biases are in the format. So for example, in M20, I personally thought that white was very, very close to unplayable. I would not be white no matter how open the draft was for white. So this was like pacifism, raise the alarm. So not not the past corset, but but the summer before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. White was pretty bad. Yeah, and five man at three two. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's like one of the premium commons for white. Uh, Ancestral blade as like a premium uncommon, which was quite good, but it didn't really make up for the color. Yeah, that all makes sense. Yeah, so it's it's understanding your biases while also trying to stay open. And uh, what it often does is that for the people who are sitting around you at the table, especially the person you're passing to, so the person to your left, is that they're basically not going to see anything good. (laughs) There's just nothing there for them. So I can be like a green white deck, for example, but then uh, maybe maybe I'll see like a royal eruption, something something that really draws draws uh, my attention when there's nothing like close to good as it in my colors. And I'll just pick that up. So it's kind of understanding the draft and understanding when you can, quote unquote, waste picks. So it's sleazy in the sense that the person you're passing to is mm, just going to be quite sad. <laughs> and it's too bad. When you say waste picks, do you mean... Uh, in terms of like, I'm speculating on a powerful card that is very unlikely to make my deck given the trajectory of this draft, but I'm still going to take it. Or do you mean something else? Uh, yes, I mean exactly that. So it'll be it'll be like, okay, well, maybe this Axe Guard Braggart will make my white deck, but in all reality, I'm not going to miss it at all. Even if I'm short playables, oh well, that's too bad. I'm I'm just going to speculate on this other card that I'll be really, really excited if it makes my deck. And um, that's a characteristic of uh, of my drafting the sleazy way. Yeah, I like that. I think that goes a lot in tandem with what Ben and I talk about, I think, frequently on the show, but also just last week about carving yourself deeper and deeper into one color. The more you do that, I feel like the more you have the opportunity to be like, all right, well, it's the middle of pack two, middle to end of pack two, and I could be red, white, red, black, or red, blue at this point and I just don't know yet because I've got myself deep in this base color and I've speculated on these various other powerful cards that might lead me towards that color pair. Yeah, it's actually very complicated because a lot of times it would be like, okay, I would speculate on this other card, but a lot of times as well, I would just make the safe pick because that safe pick kind of goes well with not only my cards, but with other potential directions that the draft can go down. So there's a lot to drafting and if you stop thinking about cards as like bad cards, good cards, you know, kind of in a binary, linear process, I suppose, 
it's gonna open your mind up a lot and i think that's one of the main problems that not only newer players but (laughs) very old players as well who are just so set in the old ways of drafting you have to look past that otherwise uh, you're not going to be able to improve your drafting all right so we're going to dive into some questions that have been submitted by you know people from our discord on twitter different places first one we've got here is from star city games writer and limited aficionado ryan sachs uh, partner in crime for a while on draft punks with you. Uh, so he says, in my opinion, Desi is the best strategic iterator for draft. When he discovers a novel strategy, his ability to explore it and iterate on it until he can exploit it is unparalleled. I would love to hear him talk about his thought process on exploring and fine tuning strategies. No pressure there. <laughs> oh, man. So usually it starts with a question. How dumb can I be? And it kind of ties back into this concept that, you know, in the beginning of a format, especially, I care about the exploration, not necessarily about the winning. But at the same time, I think that memeing in games, magic included, is that if you're trying to mess around and meme, it still doesn't mean anything unless you win. Because it's not a good meme unless it's actually able to beat people who are trying hard, right? So, just just because you have a meme deck and you're like, haha, it's so fun. If it doesn't get any wins, it's not good enough. So basically what I try to do is I start with a really, really dumb idea and I see just how far I can take it. And it obviously depends on the draft. Usually this will be in a situation when uh, the draft is going kind of bad. So uh, one of the examples I've had from this format is that I had like this really, really busted equipment deck with all these gold vein picks and all these runes and stuff like that. But I couldn't get any creatures to wield them apart from uh, giant ox. So it turned out that like my giant ox were flying in the sky with like lifelink rune and all these equipment and stuff like that. And it turns out that actually my opponents couldn't kill my oxen because my oxen were like X8s, X9s. You know, with lifelink. And they're not only the best blockers, but also the best attackers. So it all starts with like this really, really weird draft where nothing's going right. And it turns out that like, okay, this light bulb goes off in my head. And I was like, okay, this is the only way that I can win. This is the only way I can salvage this draft by doing this thing. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. So another example I have from actually just a few days ago was I got into a seat where I could not draft anything but blue-black. So blue-black, probably the worst color combination in Kaldheim, right? Nobody really knows what it's supposed to do. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I have four uh, Return Upon the Tides, which it has foretell. It's basically a reanimate card. If it's an elf, it'll give two tokens. And I had two Comas Faithfuls. So I was like, okay, well, Comas Faithful mills both players equally. So that's not really mill that you want in limited, but I can recur it. So what I did was I ran a 52 card deck (laughs) and (laughs) it was really hard to find Comas Faithfuls, by the way, in a 52 card deck. But uh, I was like, all right, the only way I can win is by 
It's well, Comus Faithful equally mills out both players, right? Yeah. So the thing is that you have to run a bigger deck, especially if you have card draw in the deck as well. So you can actually go up on cards, but not go up on cards too much that you mill out. And uh, that deck ended in a burning, burning disaster in High Mythic. <laughs> I think I was like rank six or something or like rank five. Top five Mythic, imagine playing a deck like that. You know, a, a 52 card black blue deck that relied on uh, drawing Comus Faithful. So a lot of these ideas start off as just a really, really dumb idea. But um, to me, that's what the exploration phase is. It's the science of magic. You know, there's always a cost to science and research. And uh, the price is my precious mythic ranks. So yeah. So speaking of that, you win a lot, right? Like you've been you've been mythic number one before. You know, a few days ago, you were top three mythic, I think. So I just want to hear you maybe talk about that a little bit, and also get your thoughts on the arena ranking system because I know at the end of last month you were slumming it with me in like the percents also, and then here this month you're you know your top three call time. So just. What are your thoughts on any and all that? Yeah, so the thing is that I, I don't think that the ranking system at Magic Arena necessarily makes sense for multiple reasons. First of all, Limited shouldn't necessarily be ranked. That's kind of the beauty of Limited, right? That it's essentially the battle royale of card games where everybody drops in with nothing but a backpack on and uh, the clothes on their back. And uh, you basically try your best to see if you if you can survive and beat your opponents. So having that sort of matchmaking there is um, not really necessary, I think, and it kind of ruins the essence of what Limited is supposed to be for me. In addition to the best of one hand smoother, I think that like it's it's just fine to have bad hands. You know what I mean? I don't need something to um, artificially alter my hand. And I always have these conspiracy theories on just what exactly is going on with my hand. So I think it's better to just get rid of all of that. But um, in terms of High Mythic, yes, I do win a lot. And my drafting does differ when I'm on a competitive stage. You know, like if if I'm uh, playing a tournament or something, it's going to be a little bit different. But usually the way I draft on ladder is that I'm always trying to just maximize my wins. It's It's always going to be trying to get seven wins. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but that sort of drafting is actually different a little bit than just, you know, drafting to get the most wins that you can. Um, for me, I'm going to take a little bit more risks in actually trying to trying trying to get a good deck in order to actually get seven wins. Because in High Mythic especially, if you don't get more than six wins, you basically don't climb. A lot of times in High Mythic, if you go 6-3, you're, you're just going to break even on ranks. So you have to go at least 7 wins. I, ideally 7-0, but, you know, uh, it's very difficult to 7-0. It's very difficult to 7x in my experience in High Mythic. You know, trying to climb out of the percents, I did it a couple times into the 1200s. And then, you know, you go 3-3 and you're back in the percents all of a sudden. It's really difficult as well since a lot of my viewers will be playing at the same time I'm streaming. And even though they aren't necessarily like watching my stream or sniping, anything like that, they know basically what my deck is, which gives them an advantage as well. So climbing through all of that, sometimes it's pretty painful. But at the end of the day, it's just for uh, clickbait. <laughs> just just getting people in to watch a stream. You know, people like watching high stakes games. And uh, I'm there to provide that. So 
So that's is that why you primarily play best of one over best of three is for you just feel like, well, it provides some stakes and that's what people want to watch. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing that's lacking on Magic Arena is a storyline. You know, the MPL doesn't accomplish that. Nobody knows what the storyline is. I don't know about you guys, but I, I like I'm also a full time magic magic content creator and I have no idea what's going on with that. I, I don't quite realize all, all of these like these league weekend things. I mean, I sort of figured it out after the aftermath of the last one, like why it's such a bad system for people but yeah it's uh it's pretty confounding to me yeah so you know you know just having that sort of storyline having something that people can understand going for rank one mythic it's you know something that people understand very very easily on magic arena since best of three doesn't have really competitive stakes or anything the problem with that mainly is that i think it's kind of a bad viewing experience for my viewers because a lot of times my games are just not that good which is nothing against best of three. It's just that best of three is just a less competitive environment on Magic Arena. So that's probably the main reason I just play best of one. That said, I do enjoy best of one. I do think best of one is like really, really cool, especially for streaming. People can watch a a wide variety of opponents and decks and stuff like that. Um, My one qualm with that is the best of one hand smoother i just think that that's again it's unnecessary i think that the best best of one ranked we've ever had was when uh ikoria first came to magic arena it was uh the first week of human drafts and in addition to that apparently i don't know some watsi intern or something just forgot to turn on the hand smoother and it was a really great experience you know, just good magic. It, it was fine. I, I didn't mind mulliganing my my zero and one lander hands. That's just the way magic is supposed to be. Right. Well, you're just going to get an edge in the long run when there's no hand smoother because you're going to be building better decks than most of your opponents on average, right? Yeah. And it's weird because on Magic Arena, I don't actually know exactly the right way to build lands because a lot of times 16 lands feels like 18 and 18 feels like 16. So it's like, how in the world are we supposed to conceptualize uh, magic and math when uh, there is this artificial force um, that is uh, affecting that? So I just don't think it's necessary at all. And it's just weird. I don't like it. Amen. Preach. I, I want to w- walk back just a little bit. I know we, we've been saying that a lot, but to our, our like initial questions here, we skipped over some that I, I did want to ask. I'm sort of excited about, hey, we've got this bonus episode and we maybe don't have to be so spiky or nitty gritty. I want to talk to you about being a streamer. You're a full-time streamer, what like the pros and cons are there and just like sort of how you view yourself as a content creator and like what you're trying to provide. Um, I'd love to hear you speak about that. I think one of my main goals in streaming magic is getting people to a point where other other players are so good at drafting and limited that I can essentially no longer win. And then at that point, I'll just quit Magic. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I almost feel like an arms dealer, you know what I mean? Just like signing contracts and handing out, I don't know, weaponry and stuff. And at some point, everyone's going to be so strong and I'm just going to disappear into the shadows. So I feel like as as a viewer of your stream that there's like... There's a layer of mystery to sift through sometimes. Like, I feel like it's do as I do, not as I say a little bit. Like, watching your drafts and watching your gameplay is 
that's that's where that the arms dealer thing comes in and then i've got you telling me that gold vein pick is black lotus that's the text of the stream and i have to figure out like how much is this true what is the like how much does he believe this how much am i supposed to like instill this in my own pick order yeah i mean i get a lot of viewers who come and they're like oh man i learned so much magic from your stream you know uh this is where i learned limited and i'm just like Oh man, <laughs> is is that okay for people to be like <laughs> learning from me? I think it's just a really funny experience because yeah, I think there is a little bit of mystery there. I feel like everything I say, it's like maybe 80% true with like 20% sort of um, <laughs> sort of confusion thrown into that. And is that a conscious decision to help drive interest in viewers or is that just you and your personality? I, I'm actually not sure. But I think part of it is trying to emphasize people to like try to think for themselves to some extent. And that's what I want my tier list to be. I want my tier list to be essentially a guide that people can rely on, but it's not going to hold your hand. You know, it's not going to make you the best drafter ever just because you have the best ratings for cards ever. A lot of what I emphasize in my stream is just trying to ask better questions first and foremost it, it, is that when you ask good questions you get better answers so if people say for example do you not like raven form and then i'll be like well there is a raven form and you know and you know like a smashing success in the last pack and i'm 100 percent blue and i just picked the smashing success what do you think <laughs> like what do you think do you think I would like the card if I didn't pick it there? You know what I mean? And that's not a good way to ask a question. But if somebody asks, well, in your opinion, how bad exactly is Raven form? And then that's going to provide a much better groundwork for discussion. So a lot of what I do, I think it's uh, kind of polar opposites. I do kind of like dumb meme content, which again, I do try to be competitive because if it's not able to win, it's not a good meme. Um, but secondly, I try to make it kind of an, an academic approach to Magic the Gathering. Uh, why exactly we're doing certain things? What is your argument? You know what I mean? Trying to get away again from the discourse of bad card, good card, and trying to focus more on the why. So you're telling me you love it when Twitch chat says, why not X guard cavalry? That's your favorite question. <laughs> why not X? Yeah, why not X? Why not X? And, uh, and uh, basically what I tell to them is that you tell me why you like it, and then we can have a discussion. You know, because I'm not going to lay out every single reason I don't like Raven form every single time. It's not that productive. Is content consumption a big part of your day to day or week to week? Oh, content consumption in terms of watching other streams, for example. Watch, watching streams, reading articles. Like it sounds like for you at the beginning of a format, you you turn the lights off. You're not interested in what other people have to say. You want to figure the thing out for yourself. Is there a part later in the format where you're like, yeah, I'm going to start seeing what other people are up to or there's just like people. I mean, you're clearly like engaged with the community. Like, like I see you in my chat. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. I, I know you're watching streams. I know you're like responding to people on Twitter. Like you, you don't feel I feel like there are there's a range of of people who create content and i think people I, I refer to them as like people who are on an island like they just like do their own thing and then when they shut <laughs> up their stream 
that's it. Like, and that's fine, you know, and they, they don't have to like engage with other people. And then I think there are people who find engaging with other content or whatever to be like fundamental to what they do. And I'm just curious like how that is. As a, And I think also maybe they just enjoy it. Like maybe you just find it fun to do it and you're not doing it for research. You're just like, hey, I like want to hang out with Voxy for an hour on her stream. And then you just do that. Like, so I'm just curious what that is for you and how you can fit it into your life. Because it also can be like, well, at the end of an eight to 14 hour stream of magic, <laughs> I don't really want to watch anyone else or want to like, I want to do something else. I want to watch a TV show or whatever. Yeah, I think most of the time it is like that latter <laughs> thing yeah. that you mentioned. People ask me all the time if I, you know, if I, if I like played any off stream, did Desi, did you play any magic off stream? And I'm, and I'll be like, I haven't played magic off stream in like two to three years. <laughs> I don't play magic off stream. You know, this is the, this is my work. I go to the office and I turn on magic and this is what it is. But uh, in terms of engaging with other content, for the most part, throughout even all of my magic uh, history, I almost consume very close to zero magic back when i first started playing magic and i drafted a lot i did watch uh, quite a lot of you know ben stark's videos marshall's videos on drafting every once in a while there would be a a, a pv video on channel fireball and those were essentially it was weird because i wasn't necessarily trying to learn but it was Okay, I can only draft once a week at my LGS, and that's probably going to be for the first three weeks of a new set. And then after that, no one really wants to draft anymore. So I needed more limited content in my life. You know, I needed to live vicariously through other people. So that's when I, you know, uh, consume that content for the most part. These days, I don't really engage with too much content, especially not to learn something. Uh, when I start watching a lot more streams is when I feel very close to just figuring out everything that there is to know about a format. And then at that point, I can engage in content in a way that I don't feel like I'm spoiled by anything. So that's what I try to do in general. But, uh, I, but I definitely do like hanging out in other magic streams. I think it's a lot of fun, but my, my uh, main focus is not to learn or to um, get any information. Because again, I think that that takes away from my own personal experience. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's interesting. Do you feel like it's just that's uh, like a muscle you're flexing and you're worried is going to atrophy that like innovative thing that, that Ryan talked about? Like you're an iterator, you're really able to like hone in on different shifts in in the draft format. And I, and I wonder if you're worried that that skill is going to go away if you start to like cheat a little bit by seeing what other people are doing. So I don't think that I'm worried that the skill is going to go, go away. But as I mentioned earlier, is that sometimes a format is figured out in a week, you know? And as someone who tries to stream 8 to 12 hours a day, at least five days a week, is that I'm super upset when I feel like there's nothing else to learn in the format. <laughs> that it's just, the, the, that the format is just dead. So um, the way that I engage with other streams and content and magic, it's more of focusing on that. You know, Kaldheim has been fantastic. Even though I don't think that it's, you know, like one of the greatest formats of all time or even necessarily a good format. I think the exploration process of it and the amount of times that the meta has shifted over the last two months has been phenomenal. And I've been so excited being, you know, incredibly pumped to get out of bed in the morning for my streams just because things are just changing uh, day to day, week to week. I agree. Absolutely. Format has been a blast in that respect. 
All right, let's dive into some more listener questions here. We've got Sean Worcester who wants to know, when Desi talks about the archetypes he thinks are strongest in a format, he likes to talk about which ones are strongest at the common level, and I'd like to hear about how that affects his draft choices and his view of the metagame. Yeah, so um, I will use two examples here. So the first example I have is uh, Blue Red Giant in Kaldheim. I think that Blue Red Giant is probably the best archetype. Just because, for the most part, it relies on just commons. You know, you can have your squashes, you can have your mistwalkers, you can have your Cinderheart Giants, you can have your Behold the, the Multiverse. In addition to just all, all of the random uh, red removal spells, Demon Bolt, Frostbite. Those together with, like, with a common that people very much underestimate, Carfil Harbinger. Two mana, one three, that essentially taps for mana for instant sorceries and, and for tell. It becomes the best archetype in the format because certain cards are undervalued as well as it being reasonable to fight over it even when other people are in it. So if there can be two to three maybe blue-red giants drafters at a table, that becomes the best archetype for me. Um, And now that is in contrast with talking about an archetype from the last format, which is black-white clerics from Zendikar Rising. I think that that was the most overrated uh, archetype because it mostly relied on um, spiking some of the uncommons in order to actually make the deck uh, playable beyond just three mana one fours and three mana three twos. You know what I mean? I think that it's very important to have that discourse in terms of which archetypes are the best relative to the rarity. Because limited is all about rarity. I have found giants to be pretty heavily contested on arena within the last week or two. Have you felt that at all? Or you still feel like you're able to get a good giants deck if you want to put your foot down and draft giants? Yeah, so the last week of me streaming, I start with essentially trying to be blue-red giants if possible. You know, bar bar and a Seekers Chariot or whatever other bomb that I'm opening. But it's been incredibly hard. But I will say that the week before that, I was streaming with probably close to 80% win rate, every single draft being blue-red giants, and <laughs> kind of clickbaiting people with, you know, uh, this one simple trick that people haven't figured out yet, just force blue-red giants every single draft. I think that blue-red giants is now heavily contested, and I haven't been able to be drafting blue-red giants so I want to think that people are good students. <laughs> now everyone's forcing blue-red giants if possible. Yeah, here's the tweet from March 2nd from Deathsea. Got quad seven wins today in Kaldheim drafts. Turns out just forcing giants like an idiot is a thing you can do. And only one of these is not really a blue-red giants deck. It's more of a green-red deck, but the other three are pure blue-red. And, and now eight days later can't get a blue red giant stack to save your life i guess yep i cannot get one to save my life absolutely impossible dan hauser wants to know do you ever draft snow and what's your approach if you do you you this was one of i think the things that spawned the gold vein pick stuff was you didn't enjoy drafting snow yep Mm -hmm. so do you ever find yourself into those decks yeah so one of the things about magic for me is we today we've emphasized a lot about the sort of exploration and creativity aspect of it i i just absolutely hate it when someone tells me what to do, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I like playing five colors 
in a core set that's not, you know, supposed to be a five color format. When uh, when Wizards of the Coast designs kind of a multicolor archetype in a format and they're like, hey, draft this one. This one's supposed to be multicolor, you know, draft snow. For me, that becomes very unexciting and I become uh, extremely adverse to that. Well, I think along those lines, it sort of feels like in some aspects, your approach to magic is just as a whole a little bit contrary in that way. Is there any truth to that? Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I'm definitely I'm definitely a hipster, you know, Magic the Gathering hipster, a rebel. <laughs> Playing things that aren't popular and then when, once they become popular, I'm kind of I'm kind of off it. What a sellout. Gold vein pick is a sellout now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it, it was like I played a lot of white red equipment. Uh, creatures attacking, but then once that became mainstream, you know, I'm I'm like, ah, all right, I gotta find something else. <laughs> you gotta find the next thing. So snow, I think from the very beginning in Caldheim, I did think that it was already overrated, and I thought that it was an archetype that not many people at the table could be mainly because the the dual lands and the snow payoffs people can include that in their non-snow decks so bergstrider is a great example of that where it's like you can just be a normal blue red deck but then you have some snow lands you have bergstrider so people are already incorporating these things so you're not only fighting against the other snow drafters but you're fighting against basically all of the drafters for the payoffs. So I thought that it was going to be very unlikely to be drafting Snow, especially later on in the format. And uh, at the moment, I think that I'm probably a Snow deck, maybe like, like a dedicated Snow deck, probably maybe once in every 10 or 12 drafts, something like that. Um, and that might be actually a little bit high even, but for the most part, I'm not trying to be a snow deck. I know that Sam Black has a different approach to it as well, which I do subscribe to more. And this is not my, and, uh, this wasn't my original idea either, but he often tries to be a five color deck before a snow deck. And it just so happens that these five color decks have some snow payoffs in it. So I think that's an even better approach to like forcing snow, but I don't really try to be a multicolor five color deck either most of the time in this format unless it's gold vein pick <laughs> unless it's gold vein pick so i want to ask you about the other meme card of the format what is your take on jaspara sentinel jaspara sentinel is a card that i think very similarly to gold vein pick is a card that we basically everybody was just like there's no way that this card's even playable due to our biases but um i was playing and hanging out a little bit with Raphael levy and he was like oh man desi this this card is the nuts this card is uh possibly one of the best green commons is right under packmate and you should be playing this in every single deck especially if you have a lot of two drops and i was like raf <laughs> i think you're just trying to trigger me this is basically <laughs> our friendship here you know he just always tries to upset me with like some really terrible take uh fast forward a few weeks later despair sentinel has been a, a very overperformer in the format, but I think it's very important to understand when it's good and how to make it good. So, for example, having a lot of two drops is going to make Jasper Sentinel a lot better. Having some random equipment that you can suit it up at some point, just having a body is very good. Uh, in addition to cards like Seraph's Packmate, which is already a very high pick, but a lot of times if you go like turn one Sentinel into turn two Packmate, 
turn three flip up pack mate and play a land you can play another two drop by essentially crewing the wolf to play another two drop everything works together in tandem but you still have to be mindful about it and the sentinel is not just good in every green deck is my opinion on it. Yeah, it seems to be a takeaway for me about you from this episode, I think, is that you're really interested in what makes cards tick and what makes cards good. And I think that's a pretty underrated part of magic content right now. Like, I think people tend to look at things in a vacuum and it just needs to be a much more holistic approach than that. So it's been really refreshing to hear you talk about that stuff. Yeah, thank you. Let's uh, let's let's round things out with just one last question here. I feel like a, a lot of our, our uh, listener questions that we got were sort of touched on in the episode so far. But I am curious about this this last one here from the real K Mob. I'd like to hear him talk about quote unquote forcing and why it's the right strategy for him. So sort of just coming off of talking about the blue red giants thing, um, I've seen a lot of hard forcing from him over the years. Arena Cube is probably the culmination, but also when he's found an archetype, he sees as undervalued and he's often successful. Uh, so and it also sounds to me like this may be something that feels a little spikier or a little like, all right, I really want to try and rank up today. And so I'm going to do that by doing X or I feel like this week, this sort of strategy is underrated. This is really good to tie into me drafting the sleazy way that we talked about a little bit before is that it's very important to just understand what essentially the landscape or the uh, meta is and understanding what are the best color combinations and the best strategies, as well as what your seed is. A lot of times when I'm forcing, it's it, it's obviously not 100% forcing, right? Because you can't really 100% force anything in limited. So it's about weighing those incredible biases you have. For example, Blue-Red Giants. If I think Blue-Red Giants is the best archetype in Kaldheim, I'm weighing that together with what my seed is. So it's very important to hold both these things in very high regard. A lot of times it's like, it'll look like it's forcing, but it'll be more of a a confirmation bias that I'm forcing, if that makes sense. Well, right. And you're also just more likely to get into that deck if it is truly the best deck at common, right? Yeah, exactly. The odds of you steering into it successfully go up the more that it's supported at the common rarity. Yes, exactly. So, you know, we can use a lot of examples in Kaldheim, like Goldvein Pick, for example. So Goldvein Pick, if that's extremely underrated, undervalued, then I can I can expect to get those late. So basically what I can do is prioritize creatures that are good at wielding Goldvein Pick. So in black, that'll be like a Death Knell Berserker because it leaves a 2-2 behind when, when equipped with a pick. It'll be Battlefield Raptor. It'll be uh, Fearless Pup. In that sense, it'll be I'm forcing the archetype more because I'm expecting to get paid off because people don't value it. Fast forward to current meta Kaldheim. One of the reasons why I'm actually these aggressive decks less now is because I can't reliably get those picks anymore. I can't just, you know, get draft ba- Death Knell Berserkers and uh, Battlefield Raptors and expect to be getting those picks. Now, now, the problem is that when you don't get those gold vein picks, when you don't get the good equipment for those decks, the decks fall apart. Because once again, the creatures themselves are just not very good in this format. They need the equipment to be able to um, augment them into something that's actually a threat. That's something that's actually playable. In that sense, that's part of why I'm a little bit lower on uh, the equipment and the aggressive stuff than before. 
not because they're worse, but because other people value them higher now. Right. Well, that's where the value lies in doing your own thing and innovating and exploring, right? When you find something in that innovation that clicks, you probably have about a week where you can do it with a significant amount of reliability before everyone else catches on and figures it out. Yeah. And I think one of the cool things as well is that viewers can feel the meta shifting, right? And so that's that's one of the cool things about streaming and one of the things that I really like being a almost an authority. A trendsetter, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, like a trendsetter. And it's, first of all, it's um, it's very humbling. Secondly, is that it's very exciting to for not only me but also viewers to be like all right well if i want to see <laughs> how the meta is going to get messed up how this format's going to get broken i'm going to tune in to twitch.tv slash desi most of the time people will see the stream having an impact on the way that people play magic on magic arena so uh that's one of the things that i've enjoyed a lot kind of uh playing with life or life or death <laughs> other people's life lives in magic yeah for sure Deathsy, thank you so so much for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk with me and ben and uh to to give us just a little peek i feel like a little like hour of being john malkovich like hopping inside your brain <laughs> and trying to figure out how things work i don't think i could ever be quite the innovator that you are but i'm i'm happy to have you as part of the community and reap the benefits a couple weeks after you figure stuff out <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, for folks who aren't uh, familiar with your content, where can people come and find you on the internet? Yeah, you, so you guys can find me everywhere with Deathsea. That's Death, S-I-E. And um, I am trying to become a YouTube star, an Instagram star someday. Nice. So if, if you guys do drop me a follow or, or a subscription there, that means a lot. Um Outside of that, you'll mostly see me on Twitch and Twitter, which uh, are I have a bit more of a following there. So, yeah, it means a lot. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you to ChannelFireball.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you are heading over to CFB for any and all purchases, please use the code LOL when you check out to let them know we sent you there. You can find me and Ben on Twitch as well. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Awesome. All right, so we're just going to do that little countdowny stuff again. So we'll count down to a clap here. Three, E, Wait, and... Can, oh. can I add one last thing to the end here? Oh, yeah, what's Absolutely. up? Absolutely. Also brought to you by Gold Vein Pick. It's in the pick.